You are listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Nicholas Royal, Professor Emeritus at Sussex University. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The passage is from this book, Mother Memoir. This funny looking guy here is me about 40 odd years ago. My brother, my parents and cat and dog. And the book is about my mother who was a nurse. That was her principal occupation. And she died in 2003. She had Alzheimer's. And so for the final years of her life, she was really incapable of any sustained conversation. And it was a very upsetting and difficult period. And when she died, I was grief struck and I felt a profound and immediate desire to write about my mother. But of course, the desire to write, the sort of mechanisms behind writing are not predictable or within one's control. So in fact, it was nearly 15 years before I did finally write about my mother. And when I did start, it just all came out in a fairly sort of torrential manner. So the book is divided into really quite short sections. And the first section is called pre-word. So not preface, not foreword, but pre-word. Partly because I want to try to foreground the extent to which my mother, an extraordinarily sort of mercurial person, was terribly interested in words, but she was also much faster than language. And I, I wanted to capture something of that from the beginning, really. So this is the opening of the book, pre-word. In my mind's eye, she is sitting at the circular white formica top table in the corner. Morning sunlight fills the kitchen. She has a cup of milky Nescafe gold blend and is smoking a purple silk cut. She is dressed for comfort in floral bronze and brown blouse and blue jumper with light grey slacks and blue slippers. She is absorbed in a crossword, the times, but not oblivious. She does what always takes me aback. She reads out one of the clues, as if I would know the answer. Her gift for crosswords is alien to me. I get stuck at the first ambiguity or double meaning, whereas she sweeps through all illusions, allusions, red herrings and anagrams and is done most days by lunchtime. But her fondness for crossword puzzles is inseparable from my interest in words, where they come from, what they might be doing. Earliest recorded use of In My Mind's Eye, Shakespeare's Hamlet, around 1599, referring to the ghost. My mother died years. What has induced me to write about her after all this time remains mysterious to me. It is connected to the climate crisis. As the natural historian David Attenborough says, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. In ways I cannot pretend to fathom, I have found that writing about my mother is bound up with writing about Mother Nature and Mother Earth. And no doubt it has to do also with my own ageing and the buried life of mourning, the strange timetables of realisation and loss. A memoir is a written record of a person's knowledge of events or of a person's own experiences, a record of events written by a person having intimate knowledge of them and based on personal observation, so the dictionaries tell us. But this memoir of my mother makes no attempt at a comprehensive record. 
It reveals very little about her early life or adolescence, friends and lovers, her education, travel, work. It doesn't offer any sort of rounded picture. It seems less a record of events than a grappling with what escapes words, not just love and loss, but fire and air and water and earth, smell and music, voice and touch. She was an extraordinarily giving person. She was, as I said, a nurse. She was a carer. She cared for everybody, really. And she cared also for non-human life. So she was a carer in that more widespread sense too. Her garden was very important to her and animals other than humans. But uh, yes, I mean, telepathy is certainly something which remains a kind of subject of fascination to me. And it goes back to my first book, Telepathy and Literature, which I was writing at the end of the 1980s. I'm still writing about it. There's a conference next month on ethics, consciousness and literature, for which I plan to think a little bit more about this topic, because telepathy is never stable for me. Telepathy today is not what it was when the word was invented in 1882. And the ways in which I think we're invited to think about it now, especially in the context of teletechnology and all sorts of advances in neuroscience is inevitably quite different from the way in which Wolf, for example, was writing about it in the 1920s. But telepathy is partly fascinating to me because however one thinks about it, it seems to involve a paradox, which consists in the sense, on the one hand, of something perhaps erotic or romantic, something promising of a connectivity that goes beyond anything traditional or recognisable through the communication at a distance of minds, telepathos. And yet, at the same time, the notion of telepathy, and I think this was clear from its very first usage by Frederick Myers in 1882, telepathy is a kind of break in consciousness. It's a kind of crisis of subjectivity. If there is some kind of telepathy, where do I begin? Where do I end? What is an I? These questions are, I think, inevitable questions that arise in thinking about telepathy. Well, I think novels especially, you know, fiction, narrative fiction is about mind reading. And in that sense, any novel is a detected novel. The first chapter of Telepathy in Literature is about Jane Austen's Emma in part as a detective novel. And it's a detective novel, I think, especially in that sense of establishing mind reading as not just something that is going on in the book, but something that every reader has to do. It's not surprising, it seems to me, that telepathy and detective fiction are so close together historically and culturally. I think there are all sorts of affinities and connections. I've read various Agatha Christie novels and I love them. She's very, very gifted and she does things that nobody else can do, I think, in precision and the honing of her storytelling. But that whole idea of a kind of whodunit, whatever it might be, was that what it was all about? Is that enough? And I think that's a real question. I'm interested in writing that will go on giving pleasure for as long as possible. I'm interested in thinking in texts that get the reader reflecting on their lives and what we're doing and what we might be doing differently. And so the challenge for me is how to maybe see if there's a way of writing a detective novel 
that engages the reader at these different levels in different ways. Suspense is something which characterizes the sentence that I'm enunciating at the moment. Suspense is there in all poetry, in every sentence, in rhythm, in syntax and, and the possibilities of grammar or holding up grammar. And one of my favorite rhetorical figures, which is a key figure, it seems to me, for David Bowie, actually, is aposiopesis. That's to say the rhetorical figure for an unfinished sentence or statement. Sorry, I was having fun there. As I do at some length in, in the book, in fact, aposiopesis and suspense. So these are, you know, an ancient Greek thing. So in some ways, our interest, our, our concern with suspense, it goes back millennia. Language has this capacity. Language does this thing with the unfinished, with the incomplete, the fragmentary, the still seeking, the in process, to come back to that word process, which is partly what I love about the figure of veering, about which I haven't said anything, but um, perhaps we'll save that for another time. But I think suspense is something which, for me, is created through the encounter in writing and works at the level of every sentence because I don't know how I'm going to end my sentences from one sentence to the next, which is what makes writing for me very anguishing, but also inevitably exciting, sometimes very exhilarating. But suspense is there in all writing for me and in all speech. I think our students are the greatest source of inspiration. We learn from them a great deal more than we probably manage to teach them, you know, in many ways. It's an amazing thing to be able to teach. It's a great responsibility, but it's also an enormous opportunity. And although I'm not teaching at the moment, that's why I'm missing it, I suppose. And that impulse, the desire that is there in teaching to, to talk to people, but also to listen to people is something that I never stop valuing and appreciating. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.